As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices from the Archives. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. This week's podcast is an interview with Dan Christopher Somerville. Drishan House in Castle Townsend in West Cork is the home of the Somervilles. I visited there in 2010 to meet Tom Somerville while I was working on an oral history project to do with the Great Houses of Ireland. Tom suggested to me that I should maybe meet his father because at the time he was still living in Shellingford in Devon. I called there and that indeed was a memorable occasion. We sat down to talk, and my first question was how far back he could trace his family. Well, uh, I have to count back. I think it must be eight or nine. Um, The first uh, Somerville to come over and exchange Scotland for Ireland uh, was a man who started life as a lawyer. And uh, then when... uh, um, the uh, uh, Cromwell and his lot uh, disappeared and the king came back to England, uh, he saw that the glebe lands that belonged originally to the Church of, uh, of Scotland uh, would be uh, uh, coming back on the market again. And so he hastily read for holy orders. He got them in a year and uh, was inducted into the parish of Leswalt, which is uh, uh, quite close to, to Ireland, uh, at Stranra. Mm. And uh, uh, they didn't like, the people who had the glebe land and farmed it didn't like the idea at all. And uh, they attacked uh, his surveyors who were surveying the glebe land for him, and uh, they drove them off, cutting their ropes and things. However, he hadn't been a lawyer for nothing. He got the Privy Council to send send them back with a posse of soldiers. And this time he had no trouble. He got in, he got his glebe land, and he lived there from the early 1660s until 1688. But uh, unfortunately, in 1688, uh, Black William came to the throne, and uh, the his parishioners sent a message to him to say they were coming to burn him out. And he and his family had to get on horseback and clatter down into Stranra and look for a boat to take them to Ireland, where he had a cousin in Larne on the other side of the, on the, other side of the water. 
Uh, the only boat they could find was an open boat. I don't know what time of day or night it was, but whatever, they piled into it. Uh, he and his wife and his son-in-law and daughter... and No, his son-in-law and daughter and uh, uh, my direct ancestor, uh, the first of the Toms, and uh, who was one year old at the time, and they rowed across the straits, and they did, in fact, en end up at Larn, and that was their arrival in Ireland. Um, well, this is, is still a long way from uh, from uh, the southwest of Ireland. Oh, indeed, yeah. it is. Uh, uh, the uh, the old man, the, the the writer to the signet, and the chap who was put out of his benefice, uh, he didn't last very long. He died, they say, a disappointed man somewhere on the shores of Loch Ney. And anybody who knows Northern Ireland knows that Loch Ney is not the place for a disappointed man to spend very long. <laughs> uh, and But his son, there must have been money, I think, brought over at the same time, because his son, my immediate ancestor, the first Thomas, was able to go to Trinity uh, and... Uh, Uh, read theology, and in due course get himself uh, inducted into the Church of, uh, of Ireland, and uh, uh, got the living of Castle Townsend right down in the south, or Castle Haven, I should say, as it mm -hmm. was then. Mm -hmm. And uh, he lived um, in the old church, in the yeah. what is now a ruin next door to the next door to the old church which is also now a ruin too in Castlehaven. It, it, and it's also connected to uh, Dean Swift. I mean, they has a connection with, with the... Oh, yes. The Dean uh, did, in fact, uh, uh, stay the night uh, with my ancestor. And uh, uh, his spirit, uh, my ancestor's spirit, was conjured up by my great-aunt at a séance. And he was supposed to have said to her that the dean had a bark like an ill-tempered dog, but uh, he was as honest as God's angels. <laughs> and uh, 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 that uh, it meant a lot to him that he'd had the dean for a night. Dushan, when was it first built? Um, well, it was, I think, the old part of the house, which was quite small, uh, Uh, started life as a corn store, so they say. I'd rather doubt this myself. It sounds like as though it had been a very small, a small house. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, the eldest son of uh, of uh, my immediate ancestor, Thomas II, we can call him if you like, he was destined for the church as well, but he lost an eye. And in those days, uh, you had to be presented to the Lord as a complete unblemished sacrifice, not only in mind, but also in body. Uh, so that the fact that he'd lost an eye meant that he couldn't uh, become a clergyman. And uh, so he went into business. And he started running ships from Castlehaven to the Caribbean mm -hmm. and to Newfoundland. And uh, he made a very good thing out of it. And I have seen in the Hibernian 
of, of the day of the day in, in the 1770s, an advertisement for the good ship so-and-so, 280 tons burden, will be sailing six months from now from Castlehaven, and there will be a coastal uh, ship calling in at all the ports from Cork down west uh, to bring people into Castlehaven where they can join this ship. So uh, he, he was very much a merchant. He very uh, much a merchant. He was known as Tom the Merchant. And... Uh, he had the money to buy land, first of all, um, about, there were about the best part of a thousand acres originally he bought uh, along, the, along the seaboard westwards. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Taking in Whitehall and all those places? All those places, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it, it, he uh, also uh, bought... Uh, Drishan, uh, that's the small house as it was then, and he added on a big, the big square block, which you can see in the photograph. Yes. And we don't think he employed an architect. Uh, we, we, the plan of it is simple, but the use of space is wasteful. Uh, there are really only six double bedrooms in the main house, and it looks as though it could have taken eight or ten. Well, there's a fine entrance hall. Yes, there's the entrance hall, uh, which originally was the counting house, because the old man who built the house wanted to keep the business going. And uh, so what is now the hall was originally the counting house. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then uh, uh, to the left of it uh, was a dining room, and uh, and then uh, next door to that was the original front is the original front hall, which has been closed off and is now used as a li- as a library. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, southward again is the drawing room, uh, into which children were only allowed on sufferance and seldom. Uh, and next door to that is. Uh, a place always known as the library and was originally, I think, designed as a library. Uh, When I was a boy, they ran uh, a sort of lending library to people in the village who wanted to come and borrow books. Very interesting, yes, indeed. Uh, So uh, mm, they they gave out books locally. They gave out locally, books to local people. Coming on then to the next generation. Thomas III... the original idea, uh, I, I imagine, of Thomas II, his father, was that his son could get out of trade uh, and live the life of a gentleman, uh, justice of the peace uh, and all that. Uh, and that's why he bought all the land, uh, which went, was let out to tenants. Yeah. And the tenants provided the income to keep the house going. I see. So that uh, the man at the top didn't have to do any work. Uh, and he uh, was a magistrate, I think, and that kind of thing. That was all right, you see. Uh, but unfortunately, he did two bad things. Uh, because he had no business experience, he went and backed a bill for a friend who subsequently ratted on him and disappeared.
Really? And uh, he then contracted jail fever, that is typhus. As a result of being a magistrate, he must have caught it from one of the prisoners. My. And he died. And his widow, his unfortunate widow, was pregnant with, I think, her 11th child. Yeah. And uh, in no sort of state to look after affairs. Uh, so uh, matters were taken in hand by uh, one of his brothers, who, who was living in Skull, mm -hmm. in a house called the Prairie. And uh, I don't think he behaved well. But, in what way now? Um, well, there was, they sold land mm -hmm. uh, in order to uh, finance things because the eldest son uh, was not, you know, hadn't attained his majority or anything like that. Um, and uh, they sold land when they had no need, no need to. Uh, and also they sold uh, uh, belongings out of the house. They sold the dining room chairs. I know this for, for certain because I know who ended up buying them. That was the wife of Mrs. and that was uh, Mrs. Bernard Shaw. And we, Celia and I, have seen those chairs uh, in Shaw's Corner. Oh, that, yeah. but that's, that's fascinating. Mrs. Bernard yeah. Shaw was a cousin. Mrs. Bernard Shaw was a cousin, in fact. Yeah. And uh, indeed, when my, uh, when my great-aunt, finding that these chairs were coming up at auction, decided to go off and buy them, Mrs. Bernard Shaw, who was staying as a cousin in the house, said, oh, well, I'll come to the auction with you. Uh, having much more money than my great-aunt, she outbid her for the chairs. That was Edith Somerville. Yes. My goodness, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Did Edith Somerville live long enough for you to know her? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And sure. even I knew her, met her. Oh, did you? Yes. yes. And she made great friends with my mother, who painted and liked all the things she liked. Mm. And said when she went to heaven, she was going to spend the entire time painting. So she obviously, she loved painting. How would you describe her yourself, Dan? Describe Edith for me. Uh, well, uh, as I knew her, when I knew her, uh, I was not in the least terrified of her. Uh, she was just uh, a... You could treat her in some ways as a contemporary. Mm. She had a sort of contemporary view of some things, but on the other hand, at the age of nearly uh, 90, she was just short of her 90th birthday when she died, um, uh, she was also a child of her time, mm. uh, and um, uh, she was uh, really very nice to us. She saw, saw us as the sort of end generation, the last gen latest generations that she would see. She was sweet, yeah. And she was very easy and, and good with us. But the generation before me, uh, that's to say my mother's generation, uh, uh, not including my mother, who had plenty of spirit of her own, uh, uh, were, were frightened of her. They thought of her as, a, you know, as, a, as somebody with a violent temper and a bit of a tartar. Really? Uh, yeah, they, so, well, but this was very. Uh, this was the time uh, that uh, children were uh, only meant to be seen, not heard. Yeah. This is yes, part that of one. But yeah. our generation was not like that. You played uh, backgammon. We, I played. We played backgammon with her. She used to cheat at backgammon. 
Did you see her at work painting? Uh, no. Uh, I've seen her come in from painting out of doors with a, uh, a freshly done oil painting. Really? Yeah. Uh, which the family admired tremendously. I didn't think myself it was all that good. Uh, but this was the difficulty with her, her generation particularly, that everything that she did was admired uncritically. Was it? Indeed, yes. yeah. She, she lacked uh, helpful criticism. Mm-hmm. She had uh, three exhibitions in London put on by an admirer of hers in London, uh, someone called Mrs Anstey. Uh, and I believe they were quite successful. I think it was the Goopil Gallery that mm-hmm. put them on. Uh, I think they were quite successful. But money was always easy come, easy go with her. Uh, it wasn't she was an immensely impo- generous woman. Was she? Uh, yes. So money wasn't important money to her. Money wasn't important to her. But she had her. her hands, didn't she? she I mean, you, you couldn't really... I mean, it was cheaper to run a pack of hounds in the uh, in the 1910s and 20s than it became later. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's still quite expensive. And there were never enough subscribers to cover the cost. And who were, who, who was living in the house at that stage? Uh, the house was owned by my uncle Cameron, who was abroad a lot of his time as a soldier. Uh, she used to write long letters to him, to, and but effectively she was running the place herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she ran it, um, uh, really, uh, I suppose, for the best part of uh, uh, best part of fifty, uh, 60, between fifty and sixty years. And and so, uh, but she would have had plenty of uh, domestic staff. Plenty of staff, and... plenty of help. Mm-hmm. There, there was never any trouble about that. She was living, after between the wars, uh, she was living permanently with my uh, great-aunt Hildegard, her sister, mm-hmm. um, who paid her share. Uh, they, contribu- they both contributed together. She had married Edgerton Coghill, into the Coghill family she'd married, but he died in 1919. Mm-hmm. And after he died, she came up to live at Drashan with her sister. Uh, and then in 1921, my great-uncle my great Cameron uh, uh, retired from his job as, as, as Nella Hall, where the English bands are trained. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a bachelor, he never married. So he came to live with them. Yeah. And that was the three of them then lived there together all the time between the wars, uh, up in fact to 1942 when my uh, great uncle Cameron died. You have a, a very nice um, uh, room set out in Drishan uh, with all the uh, letters and memorabilia from her, her uh, own archive. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, we wanted to do this partly because it would it made a good use of her studio, which had been used previously as a sort of junk room, where you put things that you didn't want to throw away, but you didn't actually need. Yeah. 
and the room became chaotic. It always was in my parents' time, a chaotic room. Uh, and uh, we were able to get old display cases from the Bodleian Library. They didn't need them anymore. And uh, we bought ourselves a trailer over here, and uh, a second-hand trailer. We loaded these, um, uh, the, these exhibition cases, which are excellent, although they are either Edwardian or late Victorian, but that suits the house. And we uh, brought them over to Ireland. Mm. And uh, we couldn't get them in through the door. We had to take out a window in order to get them all in. Uh, and, but that's where they are. Your father's Desmond. Uh, he, was, he was in the First World War. Oh, he was. Yes, very mm. much so. Uh, the family uh, took to going into the South Wales borderers. And, uh, Why was that, do you know? Well, nobody quite knows, but I think um, Neville Coghill uh, in the 1870s uh, won the VC at Isandlwana in the Zulu War. And uh, he was the first to uh, go into the South Wales borders, which was, of course, terribly badly cut up at Isandlwana. Yeah. Uh, and uh, after that, my... Uh, my father went into it. Um, I think that quite a lot of both my father's generation and my grandfather's generation went into the services because it offered plenty of sport uh, and uh, plenty of outdoor life uh, and a lot of comradeship. A famous fox hunting character said uh, it's the sport of kings, the image of war without its guilt and only 5 and 20% of its danger. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I think that's how they regarded it. Where, where, where was your father uh, fighting? Uh, well, he uh, had really no fighting to do until the uh, First World War started. Yeah. Uh, but, and when that started, he was abroad, his regiment was abroad they came back as far as Suez in Egypt, and there they uh, became part of the expeditionary force that was uh, going to Gallipoli. Oh. And he was in the landing at Gallipoli. The Turks, of course, knew that something was coming, uh, undoubtedly, because very little attempt was made to conceal it. And uh, my father and his men were put into a whaler commanded by a 16-year-old midshipman and... Uh, completely unexperienced. Completely inexperienced. Nobody had done anything like this before. And they rowed in this, whale, in this whaling boat. Uh, fortunately, they made an unopposed landing and uh, uh, were able to get up a, a place so steep that the Turks hadn't bothered to fortify it and they got above the Turks, and they shot at them. But uh, the men were so excited, my father said they couldn't hit anything. Uh, so uh, he, he survived that. But, I mean, that was yes. uh, the, the... That battle at Gallipoli was... was, was uh, an awful lot of, of soldiers died in that... Uh, oh, great many. My father was very lucky not to be killed at the landing. Yeah. Uh, so did he tell you all this? Did he... Yes, he did. Yeah, and, and uh, so... 
How do they get away from there then? Um, they did a very uh, careful deception plan. Uh, they put up dummies uh, in the trenches here and there, and the Turks seemed to have thought that the trenches were still fully manned, uh, and they weren't. And uh, they were allowed to I filter mean, away. Yes. They were allowed to filter away gradually. They didn't lose a man yeah. uh, getting out. They lost plenty going in. Yes. Well, he was wounded. Oh, was Actually, he? Yes, he was wounded in the follow-up attack. Hmm. Uh, all the men were stretched out across the peninsula hmm. in a line, and uh, nobody was allowed to get ahead of anybody else. These days, of course, you would uh, th that's the first thing you'd want to do, some party, to try to get in behind where the enemy were and shoot them up from behind. But no, they had to go up like a line of beaters after Grouse. And uh, uh, nobody was allowed to get ahead of anybody else. Yeah. And he was shot in the leg. Um, was he badly wounded? Uh, he was shot in the leg. Uh, he was sent off back to Malta to recover. And uh, he was able to get back to Gallipoli. Uh, for the so second I imagine time. Uh, for a second time, yes. Um, and rejoin the regiment, which I think means that probably he didn't take more than two or three months to recover. Um, so it can't have been all that bad. He spent so so many years uh, in service away um, yes. in the army, uh, and when he returned back to Castle Townsend, it must have been very quiet for him and very uh, uh, different. Yes. My mother said, I can't think what your father will do with himself when he retires. Uh, she needn't have worried. Um, he turned himself into a farmer. Uh, he took what land was left in hand and farmed it himself. Uh, and he was a very good farmer. But the trouble was that he had no idea that if you've only got 33 acres of arable and 100 acres of rough woodland, uh, and you employ two men, and you employ two horses as, as well, and you don't have a tractor, that uh, you cannot make any money. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but he enjoyed doing it. Yeah. It was, uh, he went to, uh, he and his cousin, Patrick Coghill, who also had land, uh, they went into partnership together and the first uh, uh, draft, uh, the first money, uh, uh, the first profit uh, in the deed that was drafted between them, the first £200 was to be an honorarium for the working partner. Uh, I don't know how often he uh, managed to collect that £200, but I don't suppose it was very often. So did did all of this affect him uh, later on in his life? I mean, did did, did he, was he as many of the First World War soldiers were shell shocked? Did did it affect him? No, not it a didn't bit. Seem to, no, no, I think so. You see, both Celia's pa uh, father and mine were professional soldiers. They engaged as professional soldiers. Uh, the, this is some of, one of the things that happen if you're a professional. 
And and uh, so was he a very uh, strict, uh, disciplined uh, type of character? Uh, he was disciplined, but not unduly so. No, no, uh, he was terribly nice. A creature of habit, I'd say. Yes. To some extent. No, yes. he was great, actually. Mm. But uh, um, I think uh, he found it uh, difficult to make the transition between somebody that you ordered about for their own good yeah. and uh, somebody who uh, made decisions for themselves yeah. but could turn into a companion. Yes. Uh, he and I made a long trip by car together out from England to Turkey where we were working at the time. Uh, what were you doing? Uh, I was working for the British Council oh, yes. in Turkey, mm. and uh, we were there, and we drove from uh, London to Istanbul <laughs> all the way. It took us a fortnight, Yeah. and during that time uh, we were able to rough it, which uh, he enjoyed doing. Yeah. My mother didn't really like roughing things, and uh, uh, it, it was... Uh, uh, it was uh, he, he 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 liked that being and we we got talking as uh, as sure. two individuals together and uh, uh, I think it did him a lot of good uh, and they said when he got back to Castle Townsend that he looked ten years younger. Were you determined, uh, as was your father, to uh, the, the upkeep of Jashan and, and, and to have it as your home? Um, my father said to me, you know, see if you can make anything of it, and if you can't, you'll have to sell up. And I took it on on that basis. Uh, had it been really necessary to sell, uh, we would have done so, because, I, I mean... Much as one loves these places, places that one has spent time in as a child and as a boy, uh, uh, I always think that people are more important than places uh, in the long run. And if uh, somewhere is no longer possible for people to live a good life in, then they should go. But luckily, we never, it never came to that. Uh, is, was there any uh, sense of responsibility towards the upkeep and, and the management of uh, your ancestors' place? Now, I know you told me that uh, people are more important than place, yes. uh, but, but was there a sense of place? Uh, very much a sense of place, uh, I think so. Uh, when people who are now dead, but whom you knew, uh, lived, in the, lived in the house... Uh, Something of their presence uh, you can feel when you go there yourself. And although I've never seen, none of us have ever seen or even felt a ghost there, other people have done so and have told me, I've been told that uh, uh, people in the village will think twice before they come up the avenue at night. Um. But at the same time, I mean, there was a, a feeling that, you know, with the portraits on the walls and your ancestors looking down on you, yeah. I mean, that, that was the, 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 a reminder of, of the generations before you. Um, yes. Uh, but but yeah. so you, would, you were there in the 80s and 90s and you were spending more time there. 
Um, and um, uh, I suppose the next generation, Tom, he took a great uh, interest in, yes. in Drishan. And, and, oh, yes, and, he did. Uh, and it's lovely to see that, that he did and that he's married someone who uh, is, is fitting in there, uh, although it's not the life that she ever expected for herself, I think. Mm. Uh, but she she is sort of fitting in there and becoming part of the place. I must say, coming here today and sitting down in your company and talking to you has been wonderful. And uh, so, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Not at all. It's been a pleasure. We've come to the end of this week's podcast with Dan Christopher Somerville. I hope you enjoyed listening to him. And if you would like to hear his full interview, it's available on irishlifeandlore.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.